welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Oscar Wilde said, I can resist almost anything but temptation. Two characters were looking at each other and they said, how come opportunity only knocks once, but temptation beats the door down every day. What do you suppose was the greatest temptation that Jesus had to face? What was the greatest temptation that Jesus had to face? Well, you know, of course, that Jesus was tempted, correct? The Bible says that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. You know, his temptations were very real. They bored into his very soul. Well, the greatest temptation that Jesus had to face was the temptation to doubt who he was, the Son of God. And if the truth were known, that's the greatest temptation that you have to face, to doubt who you are. You are a daughter of God. You are a son of God. Now, Jesus had to wrestle with that same question all of his life through on earth as our Savior. And the first inkling that he knew who he was came when he was 12 years of age, when he asked Mary and Joseph in the temple in Jerusalem, Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? He recognized he had a heavenly father and that he was the son of God. Luke chapter 2, verse 49. And the problem surfaces in the temptations in the wilderness that Jesus experienced after his baptism. He was 30 years of age. Can you imagine? What was Jesus' occupation? He was a carpenter, wasn't he? And you know, the, the Greek word for carpenter is tekton, from which we get our word architect. Jesus was no slipshod carpenter. He was an architect, an engineer. He was skilled as a carpenter. He could have, he had a reputation around Galilee of being the best contractor. Have you ever known an honest contractor? I'm not questioning their integrity. I know there are some contractors of integrity. But Jesus was a carpenter, a contractor with integrity, and he had the best reputation in Galilee. And he dropped all of his tools, and he put a sign up on his shop that said closed, and he went about into his father's business full-time then, after having been baptized by John down at the Jordan River, and that at the age of 30. He gave up a millionaire's life. For service for God. 
Well, for example, you think back to Jesus' temptations there in the wilderness after his baptism. And three times that old enemy, Satan, zeroed in on him at the deepest core of his being. Satan said, if thou be the Son of God, do you see the doubts there? If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made into bread. If thou be the Son of God, do a hang glide jump off of this high tower. If thou be the Son of God, claim the empires of the world as yours, and I'll give them to you, for they are mine, the devil said. Just play ball with me. Be reasonable. Let's cooperate. Now, do you think that was a temptation? If you are who you think you are, says the devil, if you think that you are the Son of God, says the devil, then you have delusions of grandeur like a mental patient who thinks he's Napoleon. Yes. And Jesus gained the victory then. But remember that the enemy didn't stop then after those three temptations. He came back at Jesus again and again and again on the point of doubting his identity as the Son of God. And finally, at the very end, something happened that helped to crystallize it all in Jesus' mind and heart when Mary washed the feet of Jesus with her tears. And he realized that he was the only person in all of the history of the world who was so honored to be wa- have his feet washed with the tears of a woman. No one, not even Alexander the Great, had ever had his feet washed with human tears. Yes, it was that Jesus realized that he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now Jesus was ready for John 13. At that last supper, he got up. He stretched himself to his full height. He laid aside his expensive robe And knowing fully that he had come from God and went to God, Jesus humbled himself to wash the feet of his disciples. He could not have done that until he had known for sure and felt for sure who he was. He could never have faced the cross until he had the assurance that he was the Son of God. And even on the cross, the last temptation that the devil flung at him was, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Who are you? Do you know who you are? You cannot be truly humble until you realize your identity in Christ, that you have been redeemed by his blood. Again, let me ask you the question, who do you think you are? I'm asking myself that question. Matthew seems to be the one most aware of this problem that Jesus constantly wrestled with. Satan wouldn't let Jesus alone, even as he was hanging on the cross in his last hours Wouldn't let him alone. If thou be the Son of God, come on down. 
I understand that there's still an ink stain in a room of the castle there at Wartburg, Germany, where Martin Luther was writing his commentaries and translating the Bible into German after his ordeal with the Roman Catholic Church. And Luther threw his ink bottle at the devil as he was being tempted. And notice also that the place where Luther threw that ink bottle was a place for him of utter loneliness, being all alone. And so I conclude, if the divine Son of God in our human flesh or nature had to wrestle with the problem in temptation all alone, don't be dismayed if you find yourself wondering who you are all alone, all alone. Are you a scullery maid or a ditch digger in the Father's house? Or are you a prince and princess of the realm? Do you have a right to hold up your head high? Or is Satan correct when he demeans you and seeks to destroy your self-respect? There's a fascinating parable about this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. We just read it a moment ago. It tells about this barefoot boy who is running around the huge estate of his father, where even the slaves on the estate are bossing him about and telling him what to do. Go to your mommy now. But when this lowly little kid grows up, the slaves better watch out how you talk to the heir of the estate. He becomes the heir of the estate, and he becomes your boss. And so says Paul, as long as we don't know who we are, as long as we don't know our true identity, all the devils in hell can torment us and just boss us around. But when you are ready to believe that in Christ you are adopted daughter and son, that you indeed are the Lord of the estate, then your spiritual and psychological servitude is at an end. At an end, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, but we have been redeemed. We have received the adoption of sons, and God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Just read it there in Galatians chapter 4, and believe it, and tell the devil and all of his evil angels, be gone, be gone. You are a son and a daughter of God. Is it a sin to be depressed? And who can say that he or she has never been depressed? That is when you're all alone and Satan tempts you to doubt who you are. And I find that the more intelligent a person is, the more susceptible a person is to the temptations at time of depression. I find that very smart, intelligent people can be depressed. And a vacuous, frozen, empty smile and endless laughter doesn't indicate happiness. It just masks the depression. Watching television comedies with their mechanical laughter that's dubbed in is a sure path to deep depression. Happiness is the result of wrestling with depression, soberly and seriously, 
and conquering the temptation by grace. Conquering it. If it's a sin to be depressed, then Jesus cannot be an example to us. For if ever there was anyone truly and deeply depressed, it was he when he cried out in his God-forsakenness on the, on the cross. I'll tell you, that's depressing. Now, you cannot say, I cannot say that Jesus sinned. Therefore, it is not a sin to be depressed. The sin lies in choosing to remain in depression, and Jesus conquered that sin. Jesus conquered it for you and for me. All through the Bible, we read about God's faithful servants who have suffered depression. There was David. You don't believe it? Just read some of his psalms. Read some of his psalms. They're full of depression. But with only one exception, he always chose to believe the good news about what God said to him, and he overcame by believing the good news that God had already said to him in his word. But it was not a once-for-all victory for David. You read his psalms, and one after another, David has these wonderful victories of faith, and then kerplop, he's right back in depression again, having to fight the battle of faith all over again. And so, when the temptation comes to you again and again, and you wonder, why? Remember David, and drink deeply of his psalms. And then there's Job, the book that draws aside the curtain behind which God reveals himself as present with you, closest to you when you feel farthest away from God. Do you have a battle? Do you? That's proof that God loves you personally. He's training you. He's disciplining you. He's building within you a foundation for lasting happiness. If you're not depressed or you have never been depressed, then you can shout hallelujah. You can thank the dear Lord that you have never been depressed. It's only by virtue of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross on your behalf where he suffered depression on his cross that you are free to sing and to rejoice in the bright sunlight of his favor. If you have not suffered and died in your... If he had not suffered and died in your place on your behalf, you would be in the place of that poor man Jesus told us about who has been cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you will not despise those who do suffer persecute depression. You will not be hard-hearted toward them, callous, telling them to just snap out of it. You're foolish. Go help somebody else, etc., The closer you come to Jesus, the more sympathy you will have for others who suffer, and especially suffer under depression. The basic problem for Christian people in depression is the haunting fear that God does not hear their prayers. They pray, and nothing happens. It seems that God does not care. And to believe in God, but that he does not care, is worse than not believing in God at all. That's why Christian people, especially Christian teenagers, often suffer the most excruciating pain. 
in their depression. So once again, we look to that cross where Jesus was uplifted and where He will draw all unto Himself and where we too can learn to glory in the cross of Christ. As the uh, Union Pacific Railroad was being constructed, uh, an elaborate trestle bridge was built across a large canyon in the west, and wanting to test this bridge, the builder loaded a train with enough extra cars and equipment to double its normal payload, and the train was then driven to the middle of this bridge where it stayed an entire day parked. And one bridge construction worker asked, are you trying to break this bridge? No, the builder replied, I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. And in the same way, the temptations that Jesus faced weren't designed to see if Christ would sin, but to prove that he wouldn't. And as he hung on his cross in the darkness, he felt that the Father was despising him because he said, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I cry out by day, but you do not answer, he says in Psalm 22, verses 1 through 3. And so the reason he felt this way is because the weight of the sins of the whole world were pressing down upon his human heart and he felt it to his very core. But did he give up? Did he yield in the battle to Satan? No. No, he did not. He bore the weight and bridged the chasm and built the atonement for you and for me. Just look at what he did. He made a choice to believe, to believe in the character of his father, as Jesus had known the character of his Father from all of his previous history. And so he was able to believe, despite the total darkness of his soul, which our sins imposed upon him. In him right there, I think, is healing for our human depression. During my lifelong long life, lifetime, I have met only one person who said that she thought she did not have enough trials and tribulations. Her husband was wealthy, and she had a new Cadillac to drive every two years. And she gave of her time and her strength and her money to help in the Lord's work wherever she saw a need, but most people I know feel they have more than enough trials and troubles. And young people especially wrestle with the constant temptation to doubt and to fear for the future. They're afraid that they're not accepted with God. They're conscious of their sinfulness, and they're hesitant to believe that God can really bless them. The Bible says that everyone who will be saved at last will be a child of Jacob. And frequently, the Lord addresses his people as, O house of Jacob. I don't know that any of us are better than Jacob. His name was supplanter. You know what that means? A trickster. Someone who's so self-centered that they want to get ahead, even from their birth. (laughs) And that was Jacob. And the life story of Jacob, I think, 
could be an encouraging study to you. Here is a man who felt God-forsaken that night when he tried to sleep, you know, with a stone for his pillow. And he knew that he had sinned, and he was keenly conscious of his unworthiness. And we are too, aren't we? And yet the Lord tried to assure him of a ladder from heaven to earth, right where he was with angels of God ascending and descending on it to help him. And Jacob sometimes had trouble remembering that dream, just like sometimes you have trouble remembering God's goodness to you. And Jacob had plenty of disappointments and sorrows, and he had to spend a whole night wrestling with the Lord in prayer. But his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. His name was changed. And so your name will be changed. And so please accept the encouragement of your father, Jacob. We're all self-centered from birth. We're all trying to get ahead of somebody else. But Jesus wants us to know that we have been adopted in him as a son and daughter of God and wrestle with God in your loneliness and in your depression. And the Lord gives you the victory to know that you are an overcomer and your name is changed from Jacob to Israel. An overcomer. Because grace is stronger than your sin. That's simply it. Grace is stronger than your sin. The problem is that a lot of people who are smug in their assumption that they understand the gospel don't understand it. They can't see that they don't know how the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The pure, true gospel is stronger than any addiction. Any addiction. And that's where you just come to the fork in the road. Believe it, and you can go on and enjoy a victory and reject it, and you have nothing to save you but your own willpower. And how's that working for you now? You better know now which is the weaker, and that's the willpower. The gospel of God's grace is much more powerful than your willpower. All through the ages, Satan has tried to shake people's confidence in the character of God Ellen White, one very thoughtful writer, has said this, it is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world, she says, in Christ's Object Lessons, page 415. There are such false conceptions of God that are out there that have, are from the roots of paganism and heathen religions, and multitudes of professing Christians are suffering various kinds of depression from these false concepts of who God is. For example, they think about the doctrine of God torturing lost people in painful hell for eternity. That's a false concept of God, isn't it? Come straight out of paganism. That just paints God right into very dark colors, no better than a Hitler or a Stalin or a Castro. But even those who seek to live close to God may be tempted to wonder if He is the kind and the loving and the just Heavenly Father that they want to believe in. Why does He permit injustice? These are questions that rise out of our hearts. 
And when they pray to him, they beg him for a piece of bread. Does your Father in heaven give you a stone to eat? Is that your idea? Satan is so cruel that he would like to make you think that that is God's character. And many well-meaning Christians think that of God. The answer to that temptation that will enable us to overcome that terrible temptation, the answer is Jesus. When he became our second Adam, entering into the stream of our humanity to become Emmanuel, which means God is with us, he suffered being tempted in all points like as we are. On his cross, he cried out to God. The Bible's full of examples of people who were tempted to think that God gave them a stone to eat rather than bread. I think of Job, I think of Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph, who was sold by his brothers as a slave. If anybody thought ill of God or might have been tempted to, which he didn't, Joseph did not uh, give in to this temptation, he might have thought, well, God's given me a stone instead of bread here. David fleeing from the king of Israel, Saul, the anointed of the Lord, Jeremiah in his dungeon, and in the mud hole, John the Baptist dying alone in a dungeon, Paul sick unto death. Let us build our faith not on transient feelings, but on the solid rock of the Bible truth that you are accepted in the beloved. You are a son and daughter of God. Do you know who you are? Our Heavenly Father is true, and He is faithful to that. Now, you can't deny that it's a temptation for over 150 years. I want to bring this home now to us as those who believe in the second coming of Christ. Because for over 150 years, we have been preaching that Jesus is coming soon. And it's the 11th hour, and we have taught that Time is almost finished, and now many are wondering because they are tempted to doubt. Is Jesus really coming again soon as we humans are forced to understand the word soon? And some have long believed that Jesus promised to return visibly, personally, in the clouds of heaven uh, are beginning to try to redefine this soon coming so it won't be personal and visible. And that means that they're repeating the arguments of our opponents of over 150 years ago while telling us that they still believe in the second coming. Now, if you're tempted to doubt the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, let me just suggest one simple observation that you can make that can't but help clarify your vision. Consider how our fast, our modern world is fast becoming like Jesus described the days of Noah before the flood. You look at Matthew 24. These are the simple, direct words of Jesus himself. As the days of Noah were, so also the coming of the Son of Man shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And Genesis 6 describes those days as corrupt, and they were filled with violence. 
All that the people cared about in the days of Noah was sex and pleasure. And Genesis says that God repented that he had made man. Think of how we're living today. And that in a time of solemn judgment. And contrast that with the giddy and the pleasure-mad and, yes, the corrupt spirit that prevails today. And you can't help but see that it's just as it was in the days of Noah, before the flood. It's time for solemn, serious, sober thinking, don't you think? It's time. One of the most basic truths of the Bible is being subtly opposed, even in the church, the teaching of the second coming of Jesus. You're very well aware, aren't you, that not one saint, not one saint will ever enter into heaven except by way of the first resurrection. You're aware of that, aren't you? The Bible does not teach that anyone goes to heaven when he dies. Each one who dies in Christ is sleeping in the grave right now. There's nobody that goes to heaven, no saint that goes to heaven except by the first resurrection. Amen? Now, if that's true, and we believe it is, then the resurrection cannot take place until Jesus returns. Amen? Because only Jesus can raise the dead. Only he. So all of the millions, all of the billions who have died believing in Jesus for the last 6,000 years, they are prisoners in the grave. They're locked in there until he returns. But Jesus cannot return until his people right now are ready. And as long as there is sin that is still buried in the hearts of God's people, whether it is conscious sin or unconscious sin, if Jesus came back, they would be consumed by the brightness of his coming. Have you ever done the stupid thing that I have done? And that is my take-home spaghetti. I forgot that there was a metal spoon in there, and I put it in the microwave, and what happens? There's sparks, right? That's what would happen at the second coming. If there was any sin in God's people's hearts, either recognized or unrecognized, there would be sparks at His coming. Oh, someone says, I can never get rid of all sin. I can never get rid of all conscious and unconscious sin. And subtly, dear friends... They are opposing the second coming of Jesus. Do you see that? Some say they would rather die than say goodbye to all sin, hoping that they can get to heaven by the underground route. But the Bible makes us very uncomfortable for it plainly declares that God will be successful in preparing a people for Christ's coming. And they will not be a handful of loners who are 
scattered loosely around in the wilderness. The Bible describes them as 144,000 who will follow the Lamb wherever He goes without fault before the throne of God. And this coordinated, this united, this corporate body of believers will be the ripened harvest of the earth that gives the angel the cue to declare, the time's come for you to reap, and Jesus will come as the reaper. The Son of Man is then free to come on a white cloud, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle, and he will reap the ripened grain. And this, the ripened grain, is this ridiculed by those on this earth? Is this denounced by people even within the church as being perfectionism? Subtly undermining the second coming of Jesus? We read in the Bible, watch and keep your garments. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working day and night right now worldwide to accomplish this task which is ridiculed as impossible. Is it possible that sinners like all of us are born to be can overcome sin and become truly like Christ in character? Can the righteousness of the law, perfect obedience, perfect loyalty Can that ever be achieved in this life? The Bible clearly says all have sinned and come short. Our very nature is sinful, and even saints can't help showing that they are sinners. Nobody is perfect. So is perfection of character an impossible dream? The Bible insists on a good news answer. Yes, God sent his beloved Son into the world on a mission, a special mission to save His people from their sins and not in their sins. And Romans 8 verses 3 and 4 says that He, is, he was sent to condemn sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. The word righteousness that's used there means the righteous character of those who walk after the Spirit. It's dikaiomata, the imparted righteousness of saints, whereas dikaiosune always is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Hebrews 13.21 says that the Savior, Savior will make you perfect in every good work to do His will. And Revelation 14, 1 describes the people at the close of time who are without fault before the throne of God, who follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth, not partly, but totally. They will refuse the mark of the beast. They will receive the seal of God. Now, are these fanatics? Are these fanatics? Are these extremists? Are these straight-laced, grumpy saints? Tough people to get along with? No way! I tell you, Jesus got into the perfection debate himself. And he came down on the good side news of it. The good news side of it. He said, 
Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And in saying so, he gives us the key to unlock the perplexity because his context is learning to love like the Father loves. Self-giving love. The Father who sends his rain and his sunshine on both the just and on the unjust. The Father who loves bad people, even his enemies. Jesus' idea of perfection is simple, learning to love like that. John learned the idea from Jesus, for he also says that if you learn to love like that, then you know God, and you're born of God, and he dwells in you, and you have his spirit, and you yourselves dwell in God. Furthermore, you become, you overcome fear, you know, because that goes along with sin. And you end up perfect. It's true that you and I were born totally bereft of such self-giving love. We're born natural self-lovers. But there is a filling station where the Holy Spirit sheds abroad in our hearts the love of God. I want to pull up to that filling station, don't you? Or to change the metaphor, it's the simple matter of going to school with Christ and learning it. The school of Christ. The best, proudest person can become a graduate in the school of Christ in learning agape love. Yes, we need to graduate out of kindergarten and cradle roll in this, don't we? It's time to grow up, folks. Time to believe who we are, accepted in the beloved. You know, it's cute to see little children lisp newly discovered words in kindergarten. I just love the little children that we have in this church. They're so innocent. It's just fun. It's delightful to look in their faces and see the innocence there. You know, but when adults are still lisping words and haven't moved on from kindergarten, then it's not cute anymore. It's pathetic. It's downright pathetic. It's time that we see the cross of Jesus, that we grow out of our narcissistic preoccupation with our needs and ourselves and seek what Jesus wants. And he wants to come back soon. Amen. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.